Amen. Thank you, Wendy. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of Matthew. We're continuing to remain in Matthew's Gospel this Advent season. And Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46, will be our text this morning. And the title of the sermon is A Joyful Discovery. But before we read the text, I want to invite you to pray with me. Let us pray together. Our Father, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would speak the truth of your word into our lives. We pray, God, that you would so fill us with your joy that we would be a bright light reflecting your glory among all peoples that we encounter. And we pray, Father, that the joy of your word would so fill our lives, God, that you would bring the peace of Christ upon us, that, Lord, you would bring healing to hurt, God, that you would show us in your way, by your presence, how to walk faithfully after you and follow you. And, Father, we pray that as we encounter your word this morning, there would also, there would also be a, a joyful discovery in our own lives. Perhaps, Father, for those who, uh, who've not pursued you, that you would open their eyes to the truth of your word. Lord, I pray for each of us that you would open our eyes in a greater way, in a more clear way, to understand your truth, and to live by your truth, And by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, our eyes, to see and comprehend and understand the truth of your word. And now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. For some time, this text has intrigued me. Don't read it yet. We'll read it in a moment. But this text has intrigued me, uh, perhaps because as a little boy, I recall reading or having stories read to me of treasure hunts, seeing stories and shows that that revolved around treasure hunts. Even these kind of shows with treasure hunts uh, still intrigue me today. Shows like National Treasure, where they're trying to find, you know, they got the treasure map and trying to find the treasure. We've all heard stories about people who find buried treasures, treasures of gold. And since we were children, these have been popular, uh, at least for me, they've been popular. I've really enjoyed them. But for a couple in Sierra Nevada, this fairy tale actually came true in 2013 while they were walking their dog on their property at their home. After, After seeing a canister in the ground, the top of it was kind of rusty and it was poking out. They, uh, they began to become intrigued. And so they went and they began to dig out and they dug around it and they pulled the canister out of the ground. And then they discovered that it contained a bunch of gold discs. So they did what any of us would do. They took it, brought it back into their house. They began cleaning it off and, uh, and, and looking at the discs, inspecting them. Uh, and after brushing off the dirt uh, from all the discs that were in the container... Uh, they discovered that they were almost perfectly preserved. $20 gold coins dating from the 1890s. They hurried back to the location that they found, uh, that that first canister, and they discovered a total of eight canisters containing 1,427 coins with a face value of $27,980. 
the discovery was a coin collector's dream. A total of 1,373 coins were $20 coins, 50 were $10 coins, and 4 were $5 coins. The coins were minted from 1847 to 1894, and about a third of the coins were in pristine condition. They had never even been circulated in the public. It's believed that this was the biggest hoard of gold coins ever unearthed in the United States, and today it's valued at $10 million. Yeah. The couple decided to remain anonymous. They didn't want treasure hunters coming at night and digging in their property and digging up their land. Uh, The coin dealer that they contacted, Don Kagan, and numismatist David McCarthy helped evaluate and restore the gold coins. The coins were, du- uh, they were dubbed as the Saddle Ridge Hoard. And so they prepared these coins for, for auction. And uh, in, in 2014, the U.S. Mint stated that they didn't have any information linking this Saddle Ridge Hoard of coins that were discovered to any thefts that were in the United States. And so for this couple, you can imagine their excitement, their joy when they discovered this wealth that was buried in their backyard. Well, this is kind of a modern-day parable similar to the story, the parable that Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. So if you found your place there, I want to invite you to follow along as I read. It's just a few short verses. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let me ask you, what would you give to gain something that you really value. What what would you give to gain something that you really value? I think as we approach this text this morning, our challenge is to evaluate our own lives before the Lord by considering whether the thesis of these two parables adequately describes our lives. You see, the Christian life is concerned with the joyful abandonment of all things to gain the most supreme thing, the kingdom of heaven. This is the thesis statement at the top of your outline if you're following along. The Christian life is concerned with the joyful abandonment of all things to gain the most supreme thing, the kingdom of heaven. These two parables are positioned among eight parables in this section of Matthew's Gospel. This is the third major teaching block of Jesus in the Gospels. And so he gives eight parables. And these parables are, it's a group of teaching material that teaches us about the kingdom of heaven. What we are to expect or or what the kingdom of heaven is like. But what does Jesus mean by this phrase, the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus means by this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, that It's the redemptive rule and reign of God through Christ. 
I think oftentimes when we hear this term or phrase, kingdom of heaven or, or kingdom of God in the Gospels, we begin to think about some lofty place in the sky where we will sit with ease and enjoy luxury kind of in the sky. But that's not what Jesus means at all. What Jesus is speaking to when he speaks about the kingdom of heaven is the redemptive rule and reign of God through Christ. You see, God is at work in the world through Christ, redeeming the world to himself. This is what we have been singing about all morning. And he's sovereignly in control of all things. This is the God who is creator, sovereign sustainer of the entire universe. Now, you might be asking yourself, how is this an Advent text? Well, think about it. Advent celebrates the arrival of the king of creation and God's kingdom. But it also teaches us to live joyfully as we look forward to his final rule and reign when we will no longer struggle with sin, with suffering, with sickness, with pain, or with death. The redemptive reign of God through Christ is a present reality for all people, regardless of race or religion. And it's the mission of the church to make the redemptive reign of Christ known among the nations. But it's also a future reality. It's a future reality that we're preparing for. And it's a future reality that will come in the not so distant future. So we, the church, believers in Christ, are longing for the day when Jesus will return and when the kingdom of heaven will be consummated, because in that day, we know that when the kingdom of heaven comes in fullness, that we will experience complete and everlasting joy in God's presence. This is the hope of eternity. This is something worth being excited over. This is something worth being joyful about. Because it's an eternal hope. It's one that is promised from ages past, since the foundation of the world. God's redemptive plan has been set in motion through the first coming of Christ, and it will culminate with the second coming of Christ. And so here we have Jesus teaching us what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so these parables... They, I think, they provoke a question in our lives. And the question is, how have we responded to the kingdom of heaven in the here and now? For each of us to consider, how are we currently responding to the kingdom of heaven today? In this, real, in this life that we know, how are we responding to the kingdom of heaven? What do you take the greatest delight in? What brings us our greatest delight and joy? You see, these two parables point us to the invaluable worth of the kingdom of heaven and the immeasurable joy that comes from obtaining the kingdom of heaven. And so I have two truths that I want us to see this morning. Two truths. These two parables, let me say it one more time. These two parables point us to the invaluable worth of the kingdom of heaven and the immeasurable joy that comes from obtaining the kingdom of heaven. So two truths. The first truth is this. The kingdom of heaven is worth more than any earthly treasure. It's worth more than any earthly treasure. These parables are teaching us this truth. 
And so even though these parables teach us the same truth, I want us to first see that there are some differences between the two. In the first parable, we see that a man happens upon treasure that's in a field. Now, we're not told a lot about the man, but if we try to contextualize and understand why a man would or how a man might find treasure in the field, we we could think that he was likely going through his daily routine. Perhaps he was plowing his land, the landowner's field and he was working the field. Perhaps he was a, a peasant that was working for the landowner. And in the midst of plowing the field, his plow happens to hit a box. And so being intrigued, he stops. He disconnects the plowshare, maybe moves the plowshare out of the uh, out of the road that he's plowing. And then he begins digging up the box. And as he digs up the box, to his grand surprise, he finds a treasure trove full of unclaimed treasure. To his amazement, it's worth more than he could possibly fathom. Now, in this day, it was common for people to bury their treasure in a field. There was no bank. There were no safety deposit boxes. And so oftentimes, to keep to keep their valuables safe, people would go in the field, they would find a place, they would dig a hole, they would bury it, and especially when there were foreign militaries coming in and out of cities invading, they, they would not want to lose all that they had. So they would bury this treasure. And then what would happen? Maybe the person who buried the treasure would pass away, or a foreign army would invade, the land would be taken, someone else would then become an owner of the land, 70, 80, 100 years down the road, all the buried treasure that was there had long been forgotten. And so we don't think that this man is unethically obtaining the kingdom of heaven. Jewish law actually made provision for one who would discover treasure that was unclaimed, that they could actually become the owners of it. And so what does this man do? He goes and he sells everything and he buys the land. The second parable differs slightly though, doesn't it? The kingdom of heaven in the second parable is likened not to a hidden treasure, but it's likened to a skillful merchant who deals in fine pearls. This man has made it his life's mission to diligently search out the perfect pearl, the pearl of great value. And as he's traveling the land searching for this pearl, he comes across the pearl of great value. And immediately, He knows he has found the one. He didn't know what this perfect pearl looked like, but he knew what it didn't look like. And he had been searching for a long time. He had been searching through all of the different merchants, and finally he comes across this one pearl, and its value far surpasses every other pearl that he has ever seen. And so what does he do? He goes and he sells everything that he had in order to go and to buy this pearl. Though these two men are very different in their life circumstances, their response to discovering such a great treasure is exactly the same. I alluded to it already. In verse 44, it says, look, it, look what it says of the man. It says that he covered his finding, and after covering his he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys the field. Likewise, in ver- verse 46, it says the merchant went and sold all that he had, and he bought the pearl. This parable teaches us the invaluable worth of the kingdom of heaven. 
It teaches us that no matter if you are rich or poor by the world's standards, the cost of selling all could never match the worth of gaining the kingdom of heaven. And this is what Jesus teaches in Matthew 6, chapter 20, the Sermon on the Mount. Right? He says, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For listen, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, our treasure has to do with our heart. What is it in our hearts that we treasure most? What is it that we delight in most? In both these parables, their eyes were suddenly opened to the great value that was before them. That which for so long had been hidden was now being seen, and obtaining it was worth mortgaging everything for these guys. I think the truth of the text this morning that we need to see is that believers are to prefer the kingdom of heaven over the world. Over the whole world. When a man buys the field at such a high cost, he possesses far more than the price that he paid. And so it is with a person when he or she considers the cost of entering the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven is worth infinitely more than any earthly cost. It's worth more than any earthly treasures. That's what Matthew 6.20 is about. It's worth more than, than family relationships. Matthew 19, 29. Hear, hear what Jesus says to his disciples. And everyone who has left houses, our brothers, our sisters, our father, our mother, our children, or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. It's even worth the complete surrender of our own lives. And this is the true call of the parables when considering the value of the kingdom of heaven. It's worth the surrender of your life. Matthew 10.39, Jesus says, Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Believer, listen, be encouraged. By laying down your life in complete surrender to Christ, your loss will pale in comparison to your gain. Jesus is worth your surrender. He is worth your everything, even laying down your life. So let me ask us this morning, is this the way that we view the kingdom of heaven? Is this the value that we put on the kingdom of heaven? In a moment, I want to come back and tie this together with some application points for us. But I want to share the second truth with you first. And the second truth is this. Joyful abandonment is not sacrifice, but supreme delight. Joyful abandonment is not sacrifice, but supreme delight. I want you to think about that for a few moments. Joy in the Christian life is inextricably linked with the advent of Christ and His kingdom, His coming. We see in the, the very beginning of Matthew's gospel and at the very end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 2, 10 and 11, Matthew 28, 8, that joy brackets Matthew's gospel. There is great joy surrounding the coming of Christ, the advent of Christ, and the return of 
Christ, there is great joy in walking with Christ, in knowing his presence, in entering the servant-filled life, the the spirit-filled life. So the joy of the kingdom of heaven isn't understandable to the world. This, in part, is what Jesus means when he says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When we talk about joy this time of year, we see signs in people's yards. We see the word joy posted on billboards. But the question is, does the world understand the joy, the true joy, that comes during Advent season and that has come into the world? And the answer is, to the world, the joy of the kingdom of heaven and the joy of Christmas is like the hidden treasure in a field that many cannot see. And they cannot see because their eyes aren't opened. And church, the challenge, the quick challenge, the side note for us is that we, as God's people, filled with joy, we ought to be the most joyful people when it comes to Christmas time, when it comes to Advent. And so we proclaim this joy to the world. We proclaim this joy to the nations. So what is the joy of the kingdom of heaven? I think the parallel of the two parables clues us in when we consider the responses of these two different men who discover great treasure. Look in verse 44. It says, then in his joy. So he finds a hidden treasure. He covers it up. It says, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field. Now, this is a joyful response. This isn't him saying, I'm going to sacrifice everything. But I don't think it's just him. In verse 46, we see the similar response from the merchant who discovers the great pearl. And it's not just a business transaction for the merchant. This is a life-changing event for both of them. They have found this pearl of great value. They have found this hidden treasure that has caused them to go and to mortgage everything. Notice the passage doesn't say, with great sacrifice and careful thought, he sold everything. It doesn't say that, does it? No, the tone of the passage is supreme delight. With great joy, they liquidated all that they had in order to purchase this treasure. This doesn't mean that someone can buy their way into the kingdom of heaven. Instead, it claims what we've mentioned already. That the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure of incomparable value and worthy of all that we have. Worthy even of laying down our own lives. And so this parable, these parables, these are, they are an invitation to see the infinite worth of Christ. And the joy of the kingdom of heaven begins with a paradigm shift. So that what's given up is nothing in comparison with what is gained. And when we see the infinite value of this treasure, we too, with great joy, will lay down everything in service to this great king. I think this is what Paul was speaking about in Philippians 3, 8, when he said, indeed, I count everything. As loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, 
I have suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that is, dung, in order that I may gain Christ. Church, is this our view of Jesus? Is this our joyful approach to the kingdom of heaven? Why is the kingdom of heaven a treasure? Why is it a treasure? Here's why. Because God the Son, the creator and cosmic ruler, stepped down into our humanity and robed himself in flesh. He left the glorious dwelling place of heaven and condescended to embark on a divine rescue mission of redeeming the whole of creation. The one who created all things became like the created to bear and to pay the unbearable price for our sin. And giving up his life unto death, he defeated sin, death, and Satan when he rose triumphantly from the grave. The Christ child of Christmas became a man who lived perfectly and became the sacrificial lamb of God to take away the sins of the world and to give all who have eyes to see the unfathomable riches of an eternal inheritance. He paid our ransom and freed us from from bondage and slavery to sin. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Here is Christ our Lord, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross so that we might have salvation. And the trade-off, the trade-off is as nothing in comparison with what we gain. And so you see, the new perspective for those who gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven, it's not sacrificial living as much as it ought to be joyful abandonment for the pursuit of the kingdom of heaven. This is what God has called us to, church. Believer, this is why there ought to be joy filling your life this Advent season. And so for all who believe upon him, he gives us the right to become children of God, to be co-heirs in eternity with him. This is the hope of our salvation. So here's the closing question where I want to make some application for us. What does seeing the invaluable worth of the kingdom of heaven And surrendering to joyful abandonment look like in your life? What does seeing the invaluable worth of the kingdom of heaven? I see it. It's the treasure in the field. It's the fine pearl that the the pearl of great value. When, When we see that, what does seeing the invaluable worth of the kingdom of God and surrendering to joyful abandonment look like in our lives? We see what it looks like in The text. What does it look like in our lives? Well, maybe, just maybe, it's it looks like a career decision in our lives. I remember when I was in college, the summer of '99, I spent a year. I mean, I spent a summer. Forgive me. I spent a summer in Conyers, Georgia, as a summer missionary, and I was there as I was there as a summer missionary. The summer summer missions director. came to me and, and had a conversation, began talking to me and asked me if, uh, if I would consider, if I'd ever considered going to seminary. And so dismissively, I let him know that seminary wasn't for me. 
uh, and that I couldn't even begin to imagine myself going to seminary with, uh, with those religious people uh, and those fanatics. Is kind of That was my thought. And so I, you know, I let him know that seminary wasn't something that I was interested in doing, didn't think I was going to be doing that. Uh, in fact, my goal was to pursue hotel, restaurant, and tourism administration. My goal in life was uh, to manage uh, a big hotel chain, uh, to make a lot of money, to be successful, uh, and to flourish in business. But that's probably every college student, well, many college students' ambition as they're going through college. And so as I, uh, as I got back that summer, I didn't realize it then, but God would turn my heart after that summer as I continued growing in my faith. And I came to realize in a much greater way that surrendering to Christ meant surrendering my future plans as well. It didn't mean just surrendering right where I was in life and then, you know, necessarily uh, going in the direction that I was going and now I just add Christ to my life. No, it, it meant that everything in my life was now changing. It meant that I was surrendering everything to follow Christ and to, to go where he would lead me. And so I grew in my conviction and joyful desire to teach and preach God's word. And then I realized that joyful abandonment meant passionately pursuing Christ and his calling on my life. And so in 2000, I surrendered my future plans to him and said, here am I, Lord, send me. Wherever you want me to go, here's the blank canvas. I'm going wherever you want me to go, doing whatever you want me to do. Maybe joyful abandonment in your life looks like a career decision. Maybe you're at the point where you're going to be making a career decision soon. or You are making career decisions even now. Maybe it looks like a lifestyle decision. Maybe for you, it looks like honoring Jesus in the personal decisions that you make. Maybe it's decisions you make with your finances. Maybe it even looks like giving up some luxuries in life for the sake of contributing to the furtherance of the gospel. Maybe it looks like giving up luxuries in life in order to support the ministry of the church or even support the ministry of missionaries across the world. Or maybe... It even looks like going yourself on the mission field and making some sacrifices in order to take the gospel to another nation, perhaps even to an unreached people group. Whatever it is, joyful abandonment means that we are we are ready and we are willing to leverage all for the sake of the gospel. Maybe. Maybe it looks like in relationships for singles, even for married couples. Maybe it looks like sexual purity. In a day when cohabitation between unmarried couples is prolific, it, maybe a joyful abandonment looks like choosing to honor Christ by keeping the boundaries clear in those relationships and honoring Christ by honoring the marriage bed and how God has designed marriage to be between a husband and a wife in this intimacy. Or in our marriages, we, we choose to honor Christ by keeping the marriage covenant pure. Not giving our hearts to another. Or perhaps it means not acting even on same-sex attraction. And remaining celibate for some. What does joyful abandonment look like in your life? 
what are the things that we take delight in? Are we delighting in the kingdom of heaven? Are we delighting in Christ more than anything else? Are we filled with a sense of joy that comes from knowing Christ and walking with Christ? Listen, Satan wants us to believe a lie. He wants us to believe you've earned it. You deserve it. You don't need to sacrifice. But joyful abandonment keeps in perspective the invaluable worth of the kingdom of heaven and seeks to pursue Christ with all that we have. You see, the wise person sees the worth of the kingdom of heaven and understands there's nothing worth more than obtaining it. Have you obtained the kingdom of heaven? Do you know the joy of entering the rest of Christ? Do you know the joy of walking in fellowship with Christ? And the invaluable worth of being part of the kingdom of heaven. For the merchant and the man in the field, their discovery was a great discovery of joy. Maybe for you this morning, it's time for a discovery of joy. Maybe for you this morning, it's time to realize that you've not been joyfully abandoning everything. You've lost sight of this great value that is Christ in the kingdom of heaven. Whatever the case this morning, I want to challenge you to respond to the Lord as he leads. Maybe you need to spend time in prayer considering the things that Christ has called you to and what joyful abandonment looks like in your life. Or maybe for you this morning, maybe for you for the first time, you've discovered the joy of the kingdom of heaven and you're ready to surrender your life. I want to know, I want you to know that I'll be here and ready to speak with you about what it means to enter the kingdom of heaven or I'll be available after the service to speak with you about what it means to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll be right here on the front row. You're welcome to come and I would love to pray with you about what it means to enter and talk to you about what it means to enter the kingdom of heaven. Church, the Christian life is concerned with joyful abandonment. It's concerned with the joyful abandonment of all things to gain the most supreme thing, Jesus Christ and the kingdom of heaven. You respond this morning as the Lord leads. Let us pray. Father, as we come before you and consider the joy of the kingdom of heaven, I pray, God, that you would speak to us right where we're at. Pray that you would affirm those who are joyfully and completely walking with you and and even living their lives in joyful abandon, that you would affirm their faith, God, and that you would bless them and pour your favor out upon them. Father, for those who have encountered this treasure for the first time today, I pray, God, that you would radically break in, that you would teach them to see the invaluable worth of your kingdom. And Father, for those this morning who have not been living in joyful abandonment and have suffered the loss of joy in the midst of setting their eyes upon worldly things, I pray, God, that you would restore the joy of their salvation. I pray, Father, that you would lead them in the truth of your word and that you would lead them in the 
joyful surrender and the joyful abandonment of all things for serving you in your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.